0: Incredible chapters. Lord, bring light to our path. Lord, shine your grace upon our, our lives. Lord, we want to serve you and we want to do so effectively. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, a Christian magazine ran a cartoon. The lawn marquee in front of the church is advertising. It says, The Light Church, let's see if we can't get it up on the screen, there we go. The Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, the 15-minute sermon, 45-minute worship services, only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium Everything you wanted in a church and less. Well, this is the church that the book of James addresses. He's speaking to Christians with a zero calorie, low fat, watered down faith. It's been said in our day, the gospel has become so diluted. If it were a medicine, it wouldn't heal. And if it were a poison, it wouldn't harm. You know, it's tragic when church... Church is diluted down. When a church dilutes the demands of the gospel to make it more palatable to society's tastes, we call it easy believism or cheap grace. It's the idea that saving faith is nothing more than responding to an altar call or mouthing a prayer or signing a card. Jump through enough religious hoops and you're saved for all eternity. You got your fire insurance. Well, the book of James tells us that's not true faith. True, legitimate, saving faith leaves tracks. In other words, real faith shows up in real ways in a person's life. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that's real is not alone, it's a faith that works. James chapter 3, verse 1 begins My brethren, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Jewish teachers were called rabbi. The word means, my great one. The Hebrew community revered its teachers. In fact, under Jewish law, the duty to help a rabbi exceeded even the duty to provide for a parent. And with such a show of respect and privilege, there was no shortage of people who wanted to be teachers. This situation carried over into the church. People wanted to be pastors because they thought it was a cushy job. They never considered its responsibilities. And that's why James warns aspiring teachers of a stricter judgment. You know, teachers are incredibly influential. I have a plaque that reads, A teacher touches one's life forever. But that touch can either lead or it can mislead. That's why the teacher needs to be accurate, not sloppy. Appealing, not boring. Genuine, not hypocritical. Mostly a teacher needs to live what he teaches. A pastor doesn't get credit for teaching the Bible if he doesn't live it out. None of us should ever say, Do what I say, not what I do. Teachers are held to a higher standard. And then verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Like a boat rudder or like a horse's bridle, the tongue is a steering mechanism. Learn to control what you say and how you say it and you can successfully navigate through life. But I'm sure you've also heard loose lips Sink ships. I mean, speak before you think and you can shipwreck. He continues, even so the tongue is a little member in boasts great things. A human tongue is a slab of meat that weighs just two and a half ounces. And yet, did you know it's your body's strongest muscle, your tongue? It can be used to inspire, or it can be used to destroy. It can build up, or it can tear down. He continues talking about the tongue. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. A single spark from a campfire can burn down a whole forest, and likewise one idol or one hurtful word can sour the attitudes of many. A combustible tongue can destroy a church. He says, The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. You know, when Satan finds a wagging tongue, he sets it on fire to do great damage. Remember Samson? He caught 300 foxes and he tied torches to their tails. Then he turned them loose in the fields of the Philistines and burned up their whole crop. And likewise, a fiery tongue is Satan's weapon of choice against his church, against the church of Jesus Christ. When the devil finds a loose tongue, he fuels it with evil to burn up God's harvest. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. You've seen dancing bears at the circus, or trained seals at SeaWorld, or talking parrots, perhaps. You can tame beast and bird, but no man can tame the tongue. An envious, a bitter tongue is capable of running wild. Wild. And it can be guilty of extreme contradictions. Notice verse 9. For with it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. We see it sometimes on Sunday morning. Folks enter the sanctuary arm in arm. They're together praising the Lord. Then they cuss each other out in the parking lot because somebody cut them off when they were trying to turn onto the road. James tells us, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. He says, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? You see, our tongue is like a spring. Its source lies below the surface. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says of man... For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. See, the tongue is the spigot of the heart. What's in your heart eventually comes out of your mouth. Thus a heart yielded to God produces a tongue that speaks kindness, whereas an evil heart yields a tongue on fire. He says, Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt and salt salt water and fresh love for God and hurtful words out of the same mouth is as incongruous as olives on a fig tree what spews from the fountain reveals the source and then he says in verse 13 who is wise and understanding among you let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom now James is teaching us that real faith is a faith that works But our good works need to be accompanied by wisdom. Hey, you know, we can do the right thing the wrong way or at the wrong time. And it can undermine the good we're trying to do. Here James associates wisdom with meekness or with restraint. Wisdom doesn't bowl a person over with the truth. It picks its timing. It works gently and sensitively. He says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. God's wisdom and earthly wisdom are different. Earthly wisdom divides and creates factions. It's egotistical. It's self-seeking. It's envious of others. You see, man's wisdom is always A win-lose deal. Someone ends up on top and someone ends up on the bottom. Whereas God's wisdom is a win-win proposition. When God's wisdom is in play, both parties benefit from the proposal or for the solution. God's wisdom looks for a way for everyone to benefit. He says in verse 16, For where envy and self-seeking exist... Confusion and every evil thing are there. Earthly wisdom breeds confusion. Following and chaos reigns. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. In essence, there's no ulterior motive. There's no hidden agenda. It's peaceable or peace-loving, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Man's wisdom looks out for self-interest. But God's wisdom looks for a solution that brings unity. It keeps the peace. And wow, those of us living here below certainly need wisdom from above, don't we? In our marriages, with our kids, in our church, in the workplace, how we need heavenly wisdom. Well, Chapter 4 tells us, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? The Greek term translated pleasure is hedone, which is our word hedonism. That pleasure is the chief purpose of life. This is certainly today's predominant philosophy it's our pursuit of pleasure that creates conflict with other people though and ultimately makes us unhappy that's the strange thing we pursue pleasure and end up unhappy harmonious and healthy relationships require giving and commitment and sacrifice and unselfishness and humility things that aren't necessarily pleasurable Thus, a hedonist invariably ends up in broken, unhappy relationships. Verse 2 tells us, you lust and do not have. This is the irony of life. Lust for more and you end up with less. Samuel Johnson once issued a challenge. He says, of all that have tried the selfish experiment, let one come forward and say he succeeded. He that makes gold his idol, has it satisfied him? He that's toiled in the fields of ambition, has he been repaid? He that has ransacked every theater of sensual enjoyment, is he content? Can any answer in the affirmative? Not one. None other than King Solomon tried the selfish experiment. Gold, ambition, sex. And yet he concluded in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this was also vanity. James nails it. Here is the result of pleasure's pursuit you lust and do not have. He says you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Hey, we fight and kill and covet to get the other guy's stuff rather than just asking God for his blessing. Don't lust, just ask. God has something better just for you. You know, countries battle, neighbors bicker, companies try to bankrupt each other for the same set of resources. It's like brothers fighting over a candy bar rather than just asking their gracious dad for the extra candy bar he's got in his pocket. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So often, even when we do ask, we do so with the wrong motivation. Our concern should be God's glory, not our own pleasure. Let's not ask amiss or selfishly. And then verse 4, boy, James doesn't mince words. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Realize being born of God, being born into God's family involves a vow of allegiance to Jesus. We agree to love Him with all our heart, to desire Him supremely. Each of us, when we're saved, we take this vow. And this is why the pursuit of pleasure or profit is a betrayal of that vow. James calls it spiritual adultery. Our hearts belong to God, not the world's pleasures. Verse 5 tells us, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. The Holy Spirit is jealous of our affections. He's insulted with our flirtations and with our infatuations with things of the world. God requires our unrivaled affections. Of course, living in a world full of temptation, how does one reserve their heart for Jesus? Well, here's how, verse 6. But he gives more grace. It's God who enables us. He fills us with his grace so that we can say no to the things of this world. He says, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. It reads, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And do you know what's at the top of God's list there? A proud look. God resists the proud. Assume you can do it on your own and God will let you try. But humble yourself and admit your need, and God will give you empowering grace. He says, therefore, submit to God. The word submit means to arrange under or to line up behind. Let's arrange our lives around God. Let's line ourselves up with his word. As Richard Baxter prayed, Lord, what you will, where you will, when you will. That should be our motto. He says in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stand against the devil in Jesus' name. Muster some resistance and the enemy will be forced to flee. You remember in Ephesians 6, we're told to clothe ourselves with the armor of God. But the one part of the body that's not covered is the back. Why? Because there should be no retreat, no running scared. We're called to resist, not retreat. I love the parallel here. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know, he says, resist the devil and he'll flee, but draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. But we need to stay in two postures. We need to keep our face toward God and our back toward the devil. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be double-minded. Don't be caught between two opinions. Be all in for Jesus Christ. I once read of a gang of bank robbers that paused to pray before their heist. They wanted to ask God to bless their burglary. How silly is that? You know, we'd all agree that you can't serve God and rob a bank at the same time. It's incompatible. But neither can you follow Christ while living with your boyfriend. Neither can you follow Christ while cheating on your taxes. Neither can you follow Christ while stealing from your employer. Neither can you follow Christ while lying to your parents. That's all silly stuff. It's just as silly. We can't love God and love the world at the same time. It says in verse 9, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We need to get serious about repentance. If there's sin in our life, let's tackle it with a willingness to change. Let's repent. Of course, James isn't against laughter, but he's saying that there's something phony about coming to the altar. And confessing your sins and weeping and lamenting. And then 30 minutes later, be out in the foyer telling jokes with your buddies. He's saying, let's get serious about this. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Hey, promote yourself and you'll rise only as high as you can go. Humble yourself and God will promote you to a place that only he can lift you. He says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? God alone is judge. When we judge someone else, we put ourselves in the place of God We should never do that. Verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. If two months ago I told you that today you'd be working from home, teaching school, wearing a mask to the grocery store, stockpiling toilet paper, and that gas would be $1.37 a gallon. You'd tell me you were nuts. I was nuts. It just goes to prove no one knows what tomorrow holds. To say dogmatically, I'll do this or I'll do that is being arrogant. We forget that God has ultimate control, not us. Life is full of unexpected twists and turns. We should know by now, a lot in life is beyond our control. He says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Your life, my life, everybody's life is like a puff of warm breath on a cold winter's morning. We're here today and gone tomorrow. How can we speak definitively about the future when there's no guarantee we're even going to wake up in the morning? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now, planning is one of life's necessities, but all of our plans should be contingent on God's sovereignty. We should say, if the Lord wills, that's how we should approach life and our plans, You know, the Puritans were fond of this Latin phrase, Deo Valente, which means God willing. The early Methodists would sign their letters with the initials DV, which meant Deo Valente. They would never make a plan without adding God willing. Their plans were subordinate to God's plans. Hey, let's not waste the lessons that these days of quarantine have taught us. One of the keys to success in life is adaptability and flexibility. God is in control, not us. I like the old saying, the bend in the road is not the end of the road if you're willing to make the turn. We have to be flexible. And then verse 16 But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It was a stormy night at sea as the battleship plowed through the fog. The captain saw a light off the port bow. It seemed to be closing in. The captain ordered the signalman on deck to flash a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. The message came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, the captain got angry. How dare them? He sent a message back. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a captain. The return message, Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a seaman third class. This infuriated the captain even further. This time he sent, Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a battleship. The final message was, Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a lighthouse. Like the proud captain, many a person has crashed on the rocks of life because they were too arrogant or too stubborn or too rigid to change their course. As James says, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Since we don't know what the future holds, or if we even have a future, then while we have the opportunity to do good, we should do it. Serve the Lord while you can. You're not promised tomorrow. And then chapter five. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. And this is the same Greek word used for the shrieks that are heard in hell. It's ominous. James is warning the rich to weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. And then he says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. And how foolish is that? It's the last days. This world is on its way out. God's kingdom is on the horizon. The riches of this world are about to burn up. And yet folks are still investing in earthly treasures. How foolish. Now understand, James isn't telling us not to save for a rainy day. Nor does the Bible teach us that money is evil. Remember, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. James' warning here is not to the rich per se, but to those who trust in riches. Those who live for money. You can be poor and live for money. He's reminding us that earthly treasure corrodes and rots. Money has zero value in eternity, in heaven. He says in verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed their fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. The rich people James had in mind had actually gained their wealth dishonestly. And God had heard the cries of their victims, the victims that they had cheated. He says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts. As in the day of slaughter, James sees these dishonest landowners as a turkey getting fattened up for Thanksgiving. Judgment is coming upon these people. Yet that's not how they saw themselves. They say, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. You see, these hatchet men, they cheated and they murdered and God had done nothing to stop them. To them, it was as if God was letting them get away with their crimes. It reminds me of the Wells Fargo agent who stole a single silver dollar from his company every day for 30 years. He'd take a coin, put it in his pocket, bring it home, put it in the trunk in his attic. But one day, he deposited his last coin in that trunk. For the attic flooring couldn't hold the heavy trunk any longer. And that night, while he was asleep, the trunk fell through the ceiling, crashing down on top of the man as he laid in his bed. For years, it seemed that he had gotten away with his crime, but not so. James concludes, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You see, today is the day of salvation. Right now, Jesus is extending his mercy, but the day is coming when the Lord will bring judgment. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See, a farmer can't rush, he can't push the harvest, he has to wait patiently on God. And likewise, judgment comes in God's time, not ours. Therefore, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Time is running out. We don't have a single second to grumble or squabble. There's work to do. Hey, our judge is standing at the door. He says, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. And he gives a specific example of endurance in the face of hardship. He brings up our friend Job. He says, You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Job 42 verse 10 concludes Job's trial by saying, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. The end of Job's life proves that you never lose out waiting on God. Perseverance has a payday. And then verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes. And your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And here James repeats a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Again, faith leaves tracks. Followers of Jesus will be people of their word. Their yes will be yes. Their no will be no. What they say, they mean. Now in chapter 5, verse 13, James begins to ask the church a series of questions. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Hey, when you're troubled on earth, you need to put a call into headquarters. You need to connect to heaven. You need to pray. To bear your cares, turn them into prayers. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. You know, there's a disease that is especially common among Christians. Did you know this? It's called cheerful-itis. It's terminal. There is no cure. It begins in your heart. And it spreads quickly. Soon your mouth starts to smile and your hands start to clap. And your arms raise and your f- toes tap. And your feet begins to dance and there's only one Relief you got to sing praise. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And then James asks, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, in the midst of this current coronavirus pandemic, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has complied with our governmental authorities and with their shelter-in-place orders. We believe in being responsible citizens of our community. But for seven weeks now, I've struggled with the church being labeled non-essential. Now, I know the Bible was written before the age of modern epidemiology. And perhaps James, if he were here, would agree with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx and their social distancing guidelines. I I don't deny that. I don't discount their knowledge. In fact, the advances that have been gained through modern medicine, I believe, is truly a gift from God. Yet so far, no one has a cure for the coronavirus, as well as a number of other illnesses for that matter. And I don't think James would have ever labeled the church non-essential services. In a pandemic, connecting with God, you'd think, would be the most essential service. I think James would tell us that God heals in multiple ways. He even heals through the church and its leaders. So don't belittle the role we can play. According to James, if anyone is sick and viruses apply, rather than consider the church non-essential, call for its leaders and let them pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. And for me, you, you somehow have to be in person to do that. Of course, long before this crisis, Christians have often used a slight little sniffle as an excuse to skip church. To the contrary, illness is a good reason to reach out to your church. Call for the elders. And here's the really good news. They won't ask you for your health insurance card or charge you a copay or make you fill out endless forms and you won't have to sit for hours in a waiting room. The leaders of this church love God's people and take seriously our responsibility to pray for the sick. And notice with their prayer, James tells the elders to anoint the person with olive oil in the name of the Lord. In the Bible, olive oil is a symbol of God's Spirit. The elders are to pour some oil on the person who's sick. You know, dab it on their forehead or perhaps close to their wound. And just a little dabble, do you? The oil you know, has no magical power or medicinal benefit. It's a point of contact for our faith. That's its purpose. Remember, Jesus yielded to the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was the Garden of the Oil Press. That's what the name means. And like oil from an olive, Jesus was crushed under his burden. Now healing flows to us by his sacrifice. And so verse 18, James says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Notice it's the prayer of faith, not the oil, that prompts God to heal us and that saves the sick. The oil was just a tangible target for our faith. We ask him to heal But then the questions come, when, and how, and why? Well, when, when the oil is applied. And the how, by the oil of God's Spirit. And the why, because the body of Jesus was crushed for us. His healing flows through his sacrifice. You know, today Roman Catholics practice the sacrament of extreme unction. They anoint a person with oil to ready them for death. To me, that's ironic. In the New Testament, the anointing of oil was a means of healing, not a precursor for dying. And in verse 15, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not every sickness is the result of a sin. You remember Job's sufferings were no fault of his own. Paul's thorn in the flesh was God's way of humbling him in light of his revelations, not a result of any sin in his life. Yet there are times when a sickness is God's punishment for a particular sin. And when that's the case, here James says that the healing comes when forgiveness takes place. And then verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, some ailments have psychosomatic causes. Stress is produced by guilt and shame. And years and years of guilt can create adverse effects on us physically. The lines etched in a person's face are often caused by the burdens their soul has carried. Secret sins get buried spiritually For years and years, but then they find a way of pushing themselves to the surface of our lives in the form of physical maladies later in our lives. Sin is harmful to our health. You know, some folks suffer mysterious symptoms that they've tried treating with all kinds of drugs, all kinds of cures. But here's what few people have tried they've never taken a ruthless inventory of their sins. For years they've swept their own hurts and how they've hurt others under the rug with lies and cover-ups and with self-deception. But what if they truly came clean? Imagine the relief. Here James says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another and you'll be healed. Perhaps it's time we confess our sin and be healed. It reminds me of the college freshman. On his first trip to the laundromat, he took his duffel bag full of dirty clothes and he tossed his dirties into the machine. Well, When he was done, he went to fold his clothes, but he was disappointed. His clothes were still dingy and dirty. An older lady had watched him, and she explained if he wanted clothes that were thoroughly clean, he had to separate them before putting them into the washer. And this is what we have to do with our sin. This is how we should treat our sin. Some people make these vague, ambitious, ambiguous, you know, just general admissions of sin. And they wonder why they still feel dirty. Serious confession gets as specific and as thorough as possible. We admit our sin one sin at a time. We confess our sin so that we can be healed. In Roman Catholicism, you enter a dark booth and you confess your sins to a priest. In psychotherapy, you lie on a couch and confess your sins to a psychiatrist. Today, folks go on television and confess their sins to Dr. Phil. But God tells us to go to church and confess our sins to one another. This is another reason why we need to meet. True confession is living an open, transparent life. It's about emptying my closet of its skeletons and being honest about my weaknesses. See, pride brings hypocrisy. It's humility that allows me to be real with my struggles. And God wants His church, our fellowship together, to be a grace-filled, judgment-free zone where honest confession can bring about genuine acceptance. Well, next, James makes such a hopeful statement. He said It's a promise, in fact. He says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What an incentive to pray. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I've heard it said, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. God answers the persistent and God-glorifying and heartfelt prayer. And James gives us this example. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah wasn't a superman. He was a mortal man. He was a human being just like you and me. Remember Elijah, he had his highs, he had his lows, his moments of bravery and his moments of cowardice. Yes, he stood up for heaven against the prophets of Baal. But then he ran scared before an evil woman named Jezebel. In the end, Elijah was just a regular guy trying to live a righteous life who knew how to pray. We're told, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Notice first about Elijah's praying. He prayed earnestly. He didn't just mouth some words. He meant what he prayed. You know, it's been said, Elijah didn't just say prayers. He prayed prayers. When you pray, do you mean it? That's the first step. And then we're told he prayed again. He wasn't a one-time user. Prayer was a habit for Elijah. Elijah prayed, and it didn't rain for 42 months. He prayed again, and it downpoured. The Old Testament says that when Elijah prayed again, he prayed seven times. And the answer to his prayer was this tiny little cloud, just the size of a man's fist in the sky. And yet that was enough to stir up Elijah's faith. He told his servant that a frog strangler, a real gully washer was on its way. And it was. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man had again availed much. And then verse 19, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Guys, we need to reach out in love, not only to a lost world, but to fallen saints who can't get up on their own. Do you have a friend who's fallen and can't get up on his or her own? You know, when this happens to an actual sheep, it's said to be downcast. Its own body prohibits it from lifting itself up. But spiritual sheep are just as vulnerable. You can get so depressed that you need a hand from someone else. We're acting like our great shepherd when we reach out that hand to help. Well, the point is does your faith leave tracks? If you and I were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in our lives to convict us? Let's adopt James's attitude. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Let's be doers of the word, not hearers only. Father, we thank you.